one of the most famous water harvesting villages in all of India is called Haware Bazaar. They have reforested all the hillsides around their village. And he said, very surely, the rainfall that they are getting in their basins, we're talking about about, you know, a little over 2,000 acres because of their reforestation, they distinctly have a higher rainfall amount than neighboring adjacent watersheds that are not reforested. Hi, I'm here today with Andrew Millison. He's the founder of Oregon State University Permaculture Design, and he runs a popular YouTube channel on permaculture. Welcome. It's good to see you again. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot for agreeing to this podcast. Oh, yeah. I always love to chat about water and the world. Mm, cool. Um, do you want to share a little bit about how you got involved with water? Well, I learned permaculture. I studied permaculture in Arizona. And the permaculture design in deserts, dry lands, really has water as the basis. I mean, if you don't understand the watershed, you don't understand water flow, then you're just driving without a map, really. So uh, since I took my permaculture design course in 1996, and I moved, well, I moved to Arizona in 1995, I've pretty much been obsessed with water flow, water harvesting, um, I spent time in my younger days in Israel and spent time in the Sinai Desert and the Negev Desert. And so I've always been fascinated by ancient civilizations that survived in the desert on scant rainfall and how people have done that. And so that just led me to you know a deep interest in water you know in the 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 water aspect of the permaculture design process and then i moved up here to oregon basically to go where there was more water mm. uh in 2008 and i've just continued my interest in you know like basically the scales of permanence the order that you design things you know water's first mm. so if you've if you understand the how to design for water, then everything else can kind of, all the other layers of design can be added on in a logical sequence. But if you don't get your water design right, then nothing else really is going to make sense. Hmm. When you were in Arizona, were you involved at all with Brad Lancaster and his water work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brad was actually one of the teachers of my permaculture design course hmm. in 1986. So I first met Brad then, I guess that would be, you know, coming on 30 years ago, 27 mm. years ago, and I've actually had the chance to watch his project from the very get-go because he had his trees were all recently planted at that time and he mm. had done the first curb cut. And so I have revisited Brad's place many times mm. since then. Can you yeah. explain what a curb cut is? Yeah, so you have these curbs that contain the street. Right, so everybody kind of knows you know you park next to the curb, and so in the summer monsoon in a place like Tucson, Arizona, you get all this water rushing down the street very quickly. So what Brad did was he you know he cut the curbs and excavated out these basins so that monsoon storm runoff would naturally pool in these street side basins 
entering through these curb cuts. Now, Brad didn't ask permission to cut the curbs. He just mm. cut the curbs, and now it's like Tucson City Code approved. Nice. Yeah, and they encourage people to cut the curbs now. Mm. And has this practice spread to other cities? I'm sure it has. I know Brad's work, I mean, he's done a lot of work in different places. Mm. Um, I go a lot of places in the world, and people have heard of the work of Brad Lancaster, mm. so... I'd cool. imagine so, yeah. Well, actually, a lot of the, even in, in Oregon, the street side rainwater harvesting basins that you see in, in Portland, projects like the Green Streets in Portland, Seattle, you see just a lot of these um, small scale street side water harvesting structures that are, this. it's the same basic patterning. Because mm. I, don't, I don't know that Brad pioneered that, say, particularly but i certainly it's the same pattern that i'm seeing all over the place i don't know i don't know you know what came first the chicken or the egg right yeah, yeah because uh there's a ethic in in permaculture about slow water and uh, and roads are kind of fast water right yeah and so the curb cuts is really a way of slowing the water yeah and it's a way of retrofitting because we live in a dysfunctional grid right where the roads are oriented willy-nilly across the landscape in regards to topography mm -hmm. right road like we have a grid that is superimposed on top of a non-gridded landscape so mm -hmm. sometimes roadways serve as the new drainages in the landscape so when we are doing permaculture type work in developed or urban areas then we're just looking for these little opportunity spots where we can take the water and you know off of this dysfunctional drainage pattern and soak it into the ground mm. so like a lot of these curb cuts and little micro basins you know that's the main strategy for retrofitting it's a lot easier to design something from scratch that's actually functional for water drainage from the get-go but mostly in society we are stuck with the task of retrofitting a dysfunctional grid mm you know, with small-scale water harvesting structures, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So when you came to Oregon, um, how did you get involved with Oregon State University? It was destiny and good uh -huh. good luck. <laughs> um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Honestly, in 2007, 2008, when I moved to Oregon, I was I was feeling like the shit was about to hit the fan. Right? It was right before the economic collapse of 2008 and all these new, it was, there was this record Arctic ice melt you know, uh, in 2007 and all this stuff was happening. And I was like, man, we gotta get out of the desert. You know, I was like, I don't know what, I'm gonna do, what we're gonna do. We're gonna make it work. And so we came here. Um, and my wife got a job at the Waldorf School right off the bat. Um, and then I was still kind of working in Arizona and I was like, well, you know, I need to kind of find my people here. I need to reach out to my people. So I had a talk and I called it something like permaculture and peak oil. It's like, let me throw those words in there and see who shows up, you know? And so um, some people showed up from a newly formed group at Oregon State University, a newly formed student group called the Permaculture Club. Hmm. And so the permaculture club went to my talk and they're like, whoa, we want you to come give a talk to our club. I gave a talk to our club and there was this woman named Sarah LaRock who was one of these people. She's a student who, who just makes things happen. And she said, we're going to have a permaculture class at Oregon State University and you're going to be the teacher. Hmm. And I was like, okay. 
and she went and she literally got signatures from many students saying that they would take a permaculture class. She went to the department head of the horticulture department. She's like, we want a permaculture class and we want this guy to be our instructor. And I had taught permaculture already at the college level at Prescott College where I attended um, undergraduate and graduate school. So I was like, yeah, I've already taught at a, at a college. And Toby Hemingway, who is, you know, he's deceased. He was a real permaculture pioneer here, especially in the Pacific Northwest. He'd already had a permaculture class that he had taught at, at Portland State University. So <clears throat> the department head looked at it and they're like, well, we've already had a permaculture class in the Oregon State system. You've already taught a permaculture class at the at a college, although it was a liberal, you know, small liberal arts college, not a land grant state university. And we have all these students that want a class, so sure, let's try it out. Mm. You know, and so they're like, "We'll we'll fund you for one class." I did that class; it was very successful. People liked it. Then another student group was like, "I was I went to them, the Student Sustainability Coalition. They had a lot of extra money. I was like, "Will you guys fund me for a class here? You know, the summer." Then I started doing summer classes, and then I eventually started doing online classes mm. in order to the in 2011 because they were like well if you want to fund your program you have to do online classes and i was like okay and also toby hemingway connected me with the state of oregon and they funded me for the year of 2011 creating a conference for state workers that worked in low-income housing and creating an online course for state for the state agency so it was this whole synchronicity mm. confluence of events that just kind of landed in my lap mm. you know right yeah um yeah i hope uh hope that permaculture manages to get into a lot of other universities and maybe like the students can organize and maybe teachers could maybe first work up like you did for, with a smaller school maybe the commu local community college and then maybe somehow branch into the universities and maybe that's the way because we really need the next generation to be learning permaculture in yeah, colleges. and it's certainly happening. I mean, at least in Oregon, mm -hmm. it's certainly happening. Um, my friend Marisha Auerbach, she taught at PCC, Portland Community College, permaculture classes. And, you know, but, you know, it's it's hard because permaculture is multidisciplinary. Mm. And the educational system is very much siloed. So, you know, at Oregon State University, there's the College of Forestry. There's the College of Agriculture. You know, there's fisheries and wildlife. There's all these different aspects that in the permaculture design system, they overlap. Mm. right and you're looking at forests you're looking at rangeland science you're looking at animal management you're looking at horticulture you're looking at crop production you're looking at soil science you're looking at architecture you're looking at city planning at environmental engineering at aquaculture all these things that exist in their own intellectual silos mm. but i actually end up having a lot of students in my classes be like wow your class actually brought together all of the different stuff that I did. I didn't know how these things connected, and now I see how they all connect. Mm. But that's actually why you don't see permaculture more in mainstream education is because it is because interdisciplinary education is is like mm. not comprehended well by educational institutions. So, did you end up in a department, or you? I'm in the there? I'm in the horticulture department. Okay. Yeah. I could have been, Toby Hemingway was in the education department mm. when Jude, the master's of education department, when Jude Hobbs taught permaculture at, um, at University of Oregon and Eugene, she was in the landscape architecture department. So, 
you know, I, sometimes I'm like, I could go in geography. Mm. <laughs> it's a lot of, there's a lot of different places permaculture could yeah. go. Exactly. And is this how your videos started happening right, because of this? So, <clears throat> so 2011, you know, I started doing online courses and in part that was just how to survive at Oregon State University um, because of the way that money works there. And, but I, but I ended up starting getting really interested in it. So I started creating online content. And in 2015, they put out a call for proposals to create a massive open online course. Um, so I did an intro to permaculture MOOC, massive open online course. We had 45,000 people take the course. But they, I was like, I want to draw. I'm an artist. I was like, I want to draw, you know, do some kind of thing where I can draw on some board or something like that, you know, and I'd seen different things, animated programs, and they were like, hey, there's this light board. There's this new kind of thing where there's this glass panel that you draw in, and it's got LED lights around it, and you write with these fluorescent paint pens, and I was like, that is cool. I want to do that. So we put together a whole bunch of these videos um, for the course, and then... OSU put them on their um, e- their YouTube channel. And I didn't even know that they were going to do that. They were going to put them on publicly. But then a lot of these v- videos actually ended up getting a lot of views. Mm. And so a I... A lot meaning how many around that time? Well, the one... Well, I don't know about that time. There was one video mm-hmm. called Permaculture Principles. <clears throat> I think right now it has like seven or eight hundred thousand views but at the time suddenly that video i think i looked i was like oh wow these videos are on youtube i looked and that video had you know over a hundred thousand views and i was like whoa Mm. people are watching that wow (laughs) that's really cool that was not my intent at all i didn't even know that they were going to put them out for public and then um i made some more videos and started putting videos on oregon state university's youtube channel and they were getting some views and such and then, but 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 their YouTube channel, when you put something on their YouTube channel, it's like gets gets lost in the sea of other videos that Oregon State University is putting out. So it's not a very focused audience because it's too diverse. And I was just like, man, I want to start putting some videos out to a focused audience. I was like, I'd like to put videos out on my own YouTube channel in order that I can have people that are specifically like can really keep up with all this permaculture content so i started putting videos on the youtube channel and then it just sort of took off from there Mm. i had a lot of fun with it and we got to a place with my online classes where my online classes are really successful we have a lot of students we have a lot of a lot of people paying tuition and it started being to the place where i was like oh i can actually spend some more time focusing because i i just realized it was like this is a real leverage point Mm. you know i started putting out videos that are getting many hundreds of thousands and now you know millions of views and people commenting all over the world and it's really inspiring to me i'm like man this is actually i'm actually reaching some people out there Mm. you know and there's people and then and then 2017 was the international permaculture conference in india and i was like i'm definitely going there okay i'm gonna do some video stuff there stayed in india for two months traveled around 
and I did India, the India Permaculture Pilgrimage. I did a series of, and this is still videos that I put on the eCampus, um, the OSU eCampus YouTube channel. And then, but, but I realized that there's so much there in India. There's so many incredible large-scale projects. I was like, I want to go back to India. I need to document some of this stuff. Like, people need to hear about this stuff. This stuff is incredible. And so that's when I was like, I'm really going to learn videography. I got a grant through the um, extension services at OSU to get some nice camera equipment. And I had the people at OSU to give me some tutoring on how to use things. I'm, and I just started, I went to YouTube University. You know, I started watching tons of YouTube videos mm. and practicing. And I, that's when I got serious was 2019, 2020, going to India and filming the India's Water Revolution series. Mm. And that, so it's very recent. We're only talking about three years. But then I was like, oh, this this is powerful. Mm. This is actually reaching people. Yeah. You know, people are, it's like, oh, wow, we started, a, a, you know, we started a project in uh, Bolivia based on the work that you showed us in your YouTube video. Mm. Like things like that started coming in. And I'm oh. going, wow, okay, this is really important information. Mm. So yeah, kind of all in on it at this point. Yeah, that's how I first heard about you. I saw the Indian stuff because uh, i was researching about water and like all the stuff they're doing water i was like wow and then i looked and i was like wait you got millions of views this is crazy like permaculture doesn't usually get millions of youtube views. yeah and now i'm so now i just came back from india i mean i was mm. in india again this winter and the pani foundation which is i mean the pani foundation videos uh are the ones that people went really crazy over mm. so at this time i went and i spent four days with the pani foundation mm. visited four different villages and we are very close to releasing the first two of those videos and then the other two will be not too far behind and i got now i'm just i'm just better i got way better footage i had drone people with me you know i was able to like get other videographers in india to join me so i got more camera angles and more footage and really nice digital animations and i went and i did lightboard drawings for all these videos too so I'm, I'm trying to make it i'm trying to tell these stories make it really high production but also make it really fascinating and an interesting story to keep people of different learning styles engaged and so i'm very hopeful that these pawnee foundation videos i'm about to release can be as successful as the first ones i did and then I've got other, I'm doing 12, 12 episodes, basically. Visited the Isha Foundation, Sadhguru. I just interviewed him in Tennessee just a couple weeks back um, for the largest tree planting project on the planet right now. Um, and visited Rajasthan, which is the desert. So, you know, and visited some incredible projects there and, uh, and other stuff, too. Do you want to explain a little bit about what they do with the water in the Pani Cup? Yeah, so basically they have a contest between villages to see which village can install the most amount of water harvesting structures in a 45-day period. The contest was founded by this really famous Bollywood star, Amir Khan, who's like, he's like Tom Cruise famous. I mean, he's one of the leading, the leading male actors. There's just a handful of them that are, you know, the top. And so he leveraged his stardom and had some great partners 
and started this competition and was able to attract really big corporate donorship. So there's huge cash prizes for these villages if they actually win the water cup. So not only are they actually fixing their water problems, but they also have the chance to gain a huge amount of prestige and even capital to infuse into their village. So there's like a lot of incentive for people. And so they had about, I I believe they've had about 8,000 villages or so compete in the competition in the four years they did the competition. Now they've actually moved on from the, from the water cup now to the farmer's cup. And now they are actually, they have farmers groups who they have instructed with the best standard operating practices in organic agriculture from the best experts in India. And they've taught these representatives from these groups in India how to do the best organic production. So now these these farmer groups are competing against each other. These are all farmers groups in villages that have already solved their water problems from the water cup. Mm. So these villages fix their water problems in 45 days, and then some years go by, they're recharging their aquifer, they're recharging their aquifer, suddenly these people have a lot of water, Mm. right? And you're like, what do you do with all that water? They're like, we need to teach these people how the, the best farming practices and healthiest farming practices that are available to them. So when I went just this last winter, I was there for the last four days of the contest, of the competition. And I met with different farmers groups. I saw their water, their whole water harvesting structures, and then saw like these incredibly abundant villages. And you're like, oh, I'm touring these abundant villages, so cool. And then you have to remember that five years ago, four years ago, these villages were devastated Mm. by drought. And that all of the abundance you're seeing is extremely, extremely recent development. It's kind of mind blowing. And can you explain some of the water structures that they use, like the Johads and other things? Yeah. Well, the Johads are more in Rajasthan. That's mm-hmm. a that's a um, that's a Rajasthani word in in Maharashtra, which is where this competition is. Um, <clears throat> and actually, in my videos this time, I get very technical, mm-hmm. and I really lay out what structures they use at what different stages of the watershed, basically. So usually, like the way that the geography is. <coughs> there's like these plateaus and then there's there's these plateaus and the village boundary are the watershed boundaries of these plateaus and then the plateaus drop down and then there's a valley right so the village is going to be like this valley surrounded by plateaus basically and then all the agriculture is happening down in the bottom of the valley so the top of the plateaus they're doing what they call continuous contour trenches which are similar to what in permaculture we think of as contour swales but they're i would say they're simpler they're easier for the common person to do because an an on contour swale and i'm going to get this is going to end up getting kind of technical for i don't know like what your audience is like if it's a bunch of you know permi heads here they can look up these terms yeah so in permaculture (coughs) we like everybody's like swales 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 and people are saying swales in permaculture they're talking about an on contour swale now, an on-contour swale can be a little bit tricky because you're making the water build up behind this berm and then it's going to need an overflow point. And this berm 
is going to have to be stable enough to hold back this volume of water that's collected behind it, right? And so if you don't do your overflow size right or you don't armor your overflow with rocks or anything like that, then you can have a blowout. So it's like a little bit more technically difficult where a continuous contour trench, they're just digging these deep ditches. They're piling the soil up on the downside, but they're not having the water back up against the berms, the excavated soil. The overflow is flowing out of these trenches onto the undisturbed ground. So they're, they're, they're doing these in these sections. And you'd have to see some diagrams to fully understand it. But basically it's like, so continuous contour trenches, and then they have these things called um, contour bund. No, no. Um, yeah, they do have like contour bunding. Oh, compartment bunding, where they have these compartment-like earthwork structures. It's like a little U-shape. And they have a very, they have a very exact way, location of the overflows, depth. I mean, they, they spec this all out exactly for the villagers. It's like hard to mess up, basically. So, you know, you can be basically not literate. You can look at the diagrams. They have the videos, instructional videos that are like cartoon that show you how to do it. And then they have, so so that's like, so they have, right, the CCTs, and then they have CCTs and deep CCTs, continuous contour trenches. Then they have the compartment buns at the top. And then as you go down the slope, you might still hit some CCTs or some terracing. But then at some point where the, and then in the wash itself, they'll have what they call loose boulder structures, which is like a check dam essentially. And then once the wash flattens out there, they'll put a, like a recharge pit, basically just like a hole for the water to go into. And then as you get down into the flatlands, then on the drainages, they have what they call nala buns, which is basically like, more like a concrete check dam and then they have farm ponds which they're um either having water run in from the surface into these like farm ponds which oftentimes are lined so the lined ones they call farm ponds the unlined ones they call recharge pits Mm. um and so so you've got these ponds that either are collecting water directly or they're actually eventually pumping groundwater into them for storage high up to gravity flow down. And then in the bottom of the valley, they start actually building a larger ponds, water holding, you know, water bodies basically. And then even, even down in the valley, they have some interesting things where they're doing like some, some like concrete, not concrete, some stone check dams across a wash where they'll then divert water from the wash around and just put it directly into like a surface well, an open well pit. Because they're all they're pulling all of their water from the surface water table. That's where it's like really different than the US. Because in the US we have these deep wells. So you might be pumping some agricultural well might be from, you know, three hundred feet down. So the water that you do on the surface there may or may not be connected aquifer wise to where you're pumping water from here. Because we have this deep well drilling technology. We're in India primarily it's hand dug wells mm. so none of the wells their wells are only as deep as you can dig so these these big they're not like a little well shaft like we think they're like these big wide circle circular wells so you're like looking down you're looking at the water table which means they're monitoring the water table very quickly you can see the water table because it's all in these open wells so a lot of times they'll go and they'll divert water and just pump it right into these open wells 
or not pump it, divert water, divert water flow right into these open wells, you know, do some silt traps to, to get the water clean and just like put it right into the ground. And they're stockpiling water in the ground. And then in many villages, like I said, they have a lot of farm ponds where they're then pumping water out of the ground while they have, you know, the water table might, with all of these water harvesting structures, I mean, the water table rises up. So the water table at some point in the year is like very high. In, in the monsoon time and they'll go and they'll pump all that water not all that water they'll pump a lot of that excess water into other high storages so then when they get to the dry season they've got their groundwater reserves and then they've got all this other open water storage and mm. so they say like if they have one good year of rain basically they could make it through like two or three drought years mm. with this method so the problem before was it because in these places there is a lot of rain in the monsoon season yeah. but they just weren't figuring out how to store it for the dry season but now with the ponds they can store in the ponds and then divert it and also increase the groundwater so it has water for the it's also season. it's also the landscape was de highly degraded mm. so actually there's one more water harvesting feature i didn't mention so it's 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 reforesting the slopes mm. so they're also <laughs> planting trees as a particularly water slowing and climatic controlled device so there's a lot of grazing animals. There's been a lot of deforestation. The Green Revolution, people went and cut down trees. They, they thought that the trees were robbing their fields of fertilizer and stuff like that. So mm. there's been a lot of land degradation. So you had a, 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 you had a landscape, you had a watershed that was no longer holding water. Water, you had the monsoon rains, everything's flowing, the water rushes off, and it's gone. It's not soaking in. So what they're doing is they're essentially creating this entire watershed-wide matrix of water harvesting structures at every elevation, including revegetation, including trees, and then including now organic soil production, you know, and, and so increasing the, the water holding capacity of the soil itself mm. as it becomes higher in organic matter, as it's not being nuked by... You know chemical fertilizers and everything and so um yeah so prior they're working just in a, in a degraded landscape condition mm. yeah and uh, did you say there's stories that you've heard too about how it affects the rain yeah i have heard a number of stories uh of people that have have the data that they're collecting rainfall statistics now the one of the most famous water harvesting villages in in all of india certainly in maharashtra is called haware bazaar and haware bazaar was a village it was the village that amir khan the bollywood star and others looked at this village and said wait a minute how is it that this village has is so abundant has solved their water problems and the whole water cup competition was based off, in a large part, the work of Huare Bazaar and some other villages, but Huare Bazaar is one of the big ones. And they, I believe they started fixing their water problems in like, I think the late 70s, early 80s. After one of the days of touring villages with Dr. Avinash Pol, who's the chief advisor of the Pani Foundation, he said, come with me, I want to take you to this other village. So he brought my wife and I to Huare Bazaar. I didn't do any filming there. It was like, sun. I'd already been filming all day. It was sunset, you know, but we met with the chief of the village who is also the guy who founded the water project. And so this is like, they have serious data. Their village 
I'm if I got my numbers right, it was about a thousand hectares, which is about twenty two hundred acres. And they have reforested all the hillsides around their village. And he said very surely the rainfall that they are getting in their basins, we're talking about about, you know, a little over two thousand acres, because of their reforestation, they distinctly have a higher rainfall amount than neighboring adjacent uh watersheds that are not reforested that are mm. deforested right so that's very clear the first time i was ever exposed to this actually this concept and proof of this concept was on a smaller scale uh <clears throat> it's down um, outside of hampi which is in karnataka hampi is like a world heritage site it's one of the most popularly visited uh archaeological sites in india like whenever you look at like top 10 places to go hampi it's it's this incredible location at the time it's a ruined city in the middle of karnataka and these bouldered landscapes at the time that hampi was at its at its peak it was the largest city on the planet okay so this is like this crazy landscape anyway that's that's a little aside that's just a little plug for like oh if you're ever visiting india check out hampi it's freaking incredible but we stayed with this was so my I was I was with my friend Rico Zook, uh, and he had actually had a client outside of Humpy, a guy named Bobby, who Bobby is like the he is like the descendant of the old Raj, the old like king of this area. So Bobby has a lot of ancestral lands that are still under his family's control. And he has this eco-resort that he put us up at for free, which is very gracious of him. And Bob, all Bobby cares about is wildlife rehabilitation. So Bobby, for many years, has been strategically buying up land uh, around these wildlife areas and creating this like de facto wildlife reserve that is boxed in by private land so you know keeping grazing going and fencing and and like specifically um geared at maintaining elephant migration corridors maintaining um bear corridors how animals from these wild areas would get to water because when you break these corridors up you end up having a lot of bad interactions between humans and wildlife that sometimes leads to death of humans when they run into things like elephants so this wasn't elephants here this was the sloth bear the indian sloth bear was the one area that i was that he had maintained over there but anyway <clears throat> he had about i calculated it was something like 450 to 600 acres contiguous that he had sort of created in this area and he said that he very again distinctly had higher rainfall totals than adjacent degraded areas because he'd been letting this forest grow up for decades and so it was a lush forest had grown up in this region um even the village that i'm editing the video for right now pemgiri one of the villages that i visited again these are these watersheds are you know about two thousand acres is like a sort of normal size watershed for some of these villages um 
I was just looking at this video footage just today, the interview I did, where the guy who was talking to me, the villager who was spoke English well and he was the spokesperson, he was saying that that all of the villagers there understand that in their treed areas, in these little basins, these little, you know, like valleys and canyons that they have, that these treed areas get more rainfall than the denuded areas mm -hmm. from their measurements. I asked Rajendra Singh, Dr. Rajendra Singh, the waterman of India, I asked him this question specifically. I wish I could remember the exact numbers, but I said, How, what's the smallest area that it would take to actually create this effect where you're increasing rainfall by revegetating? And he said the answer, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, I can't remember the numbers. Um, the answer he gave was that there are different numbers for like a contained mountain valley, for instance, mm -hmm. versus a wide open flatland. I believe actually he said something like 60 square kilometers for a flatland, mm -hmm. but it was much smaller, much smaller for a contained valley, more along the lines of the like 600 acre areas that I'm 600 to 2000 acre areas that I'm describing. So the point is that it's, shockingly small area mm. that we need to concentrate revegetation on to actually affect rainfall that's what it seems i would love to see like some really intense in-depth long-term studies on this mm. but from the the bits and pieces of data that i've been able to glean by traveling around and talking to people that are on the ground that are measuring rainfall that are experts in this is that you really can have this effect on a smaller level. Of course, your proximity to the ocean, topography, the orographic effect, the size of the valley. I mean, there's a lot of factors as to how large of an area you actually need to vegetate to increase the rainfall. And, you know, there should be a whole in-depth in study on that that I'd love to see. Yeah, um, I talked to this uh, climate scientist, Milan Milan from Spain, uh -huh. and I did a podcast interview with him, and he... He was saying that it, it, it depends on like how much evaporation you need to push the humidity already in the air over the dew point so then it can condense. So in places you know where, where it's near near to getting that dew point then it's very good like the if you have more evaporative transpiration because that can push it over. And he gave a figure about six miles by six miles, which sounds about your sixty kilometer squared thing. And yeah, and also yeah, he, I think they're saying that if there's mounds because the mountains stop that airflow because if because uh, evaporation could travel for hundreds of kilometers or even over a thousand so if there's something blocking it then it doesn't get as far um so do you, do you know what the uh, the climate was in those three stories you're told or the approximate rainfall they get in those areas yeah i mean Haware bazaar <laughs> is going to be in the like three to six hundred millimeter range mm -hmm. you know um the karnataka area both that's in a, a drier part of Karnataka so yeah I mean all of those that's probably going to be in a similar you know five to six hundred millimeters so we're talking you know like in the say 18 to 20 inches mm -hmm. all coming at a in a short period of time I mean it really varies of course you have it's like California amount right yeah it's like California amount and 
what Dr. Rajendra Singh was saying was really like when you have a sort of like a coastal facing small valley with mountains, you know, so you have moisture coming off of a water body and then hitting a mountain range and then you have these little folded valleys there. I think in a topography like that, like a lot of the coastal California, I think that, that that's from what he described, that would be a very successful type of location topographical location to have a high a greater amount of rainfall from a smaller amount of mm. reforested area is those areas that you talk about do they have mountains that are blocking the flow yeah i mean they're all like i said the um the maharashtra areas like where Hawari bazaar is it's like plateaus mm. it's like the whole thing it's a very it's a very like undulating landscape it's like mm. all these little plateaus and small watersheds coming off mm. so it's like there's a lot of relief there there's not a ton of taller mountains but there's a lot of relief mm. it's not a flat zone and then of course humpy is the whole thing is like giant boulder mounds it's very diverse topography so have i i have not visited a flatland location that has claimed to have increase the rainfall mm. by okay, by yeah. tree planting there, there is another factor too um this woman francina dominguez a climate scientist she's uh, she found that when trees um if you have a forest that actually will create turbulence or slow down the wind blowing so then the water molecules have more of a chance to find each other so mm. that's why in the amazon and the congo rainforest that there's a lot more it's called precipitation recycling or the small water yeah. cycle where where it, it, it creates a lot more rain because I think the forests in part are also slowing down a lot of the, the wind so it can actually form rain. And they're also putting up little bioaerosols and other things to yeah. seed the rain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Little uh, fungal spores and, yeah, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, it's really exciting to hear that the Pani Cup is uh, also affecting the rain and they're documenting it too. And I assume they're going to go into your videos too? Or? Yeah, well, that, the... I mean, I put the guy in the one video talking mm -hmm. about how the villagers know that, you know, the areas with forests have more rain. So um, I don't have Huare Bazaar. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to actually, if I was going to go back to do, Huare Bazaar is already, it's already very famous in India. Mm -hmm. So it already has a lot of press, but people don't know about Huare Bazaar outside of India. So it actually would be a great place. Actually, when I was there, I was like, man, I got to come back here and just do, spend like four days in Huare Bazaar. You know, I mean, there's so much to see like to see an advanced system like that but man uh in rajasthan i visited the village of laporia speaking of which i heard of the village of laporia because it's in one of brad's books he tells a story of like the water harvesting village mm. um, the story of lakshman singh who uh we went and met and this is south of jaipur in rajasthan and um they have a a project that's 45 years old of revegetation water harvesting on flatlands now i did not talk to them about increases in rainfall um and that would actually be an interesting question to ask and i actually could get in contact with um one of the guys there who's a, a scientist but um what i did see there was a very mature like like greening the desert 45 years later 
project. Mm. They've created massive amounts of open water bodies, like lakes, basically. Um, tons of tree planting, reforestation, organic agriculture, incredibly prosperous, incredibly abundant. And it's not just the one village that has done this, but over the time they've spread to neighboring villages where they have actually interconnected their water harvesting structures between villages. Mm. So you'll have like a big, I mean, all Indian villages in that area in Rajasthan are built around some sort of water body, like historically, like that's where they'd have, they'd have like a water body and then they'd have wells. So the water body collect water and then it recharge the wells. A lot of those water bodies over time filled in or whatever. So um, they, they, ink, they built new water bodies. They, you know, and then they would take the water body from one village, like the main pond, right? And then they would go and for the, for the these two villages adjoining each other, then they actually took the overflow from that one village, like miles, they had a big berm and a ditch and all the overflow from one pond would flow all the way over to the next village's pond. They mm. actually interconnected villages over this flat land. It's like key line design on a massive scale. Mm. So, but that also is probably at the scale where I'd imagine they were affecting the rainfall mm -hmm. with the amount of land that they have in trees in that, in that zone. Yeah. It seems to me this is really important because there's so many pl places around the world dealing with water scarcity, like here in the U.S. and the Western U.S. and you know, uh, in Africa. Like, I mean, basically every country like has water scarcity issues. And so, if you can actually increase the rain, and uh, if it's because I think people or governments don't realize that this is possible, and so it it puts a whole different spin on how how we want to you know deal with our water scarcity issues. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm doing these videos, mm. really. It's just like, people, you need to know about this. Yeah, This is the stuff right here. This is how we turn the ship around, mm. you know, because it's, it's very daunting to look at reducing industrial carbon on the planet, reducing coal consumption. I mean, these just, it, it, it gets way out of the common person's ability to control very quickly mm. right but what can we control you know we can control the way that water flows and like the vegetative cover in our own communities and to know that you can actually make a difference i mean definitely in groundwater mm. and then even in atmospheric moisture you know the amount of rain that falls like the fact that you can actually affect that on on a reasonable scale to imagine addressing I mean, it's empowering. Mm. How do these, uh, these, these processes and this community activation translate to other countries? Just say in Africa, where there's a lot of water issues and also soil issues. Like how are they able to use some of these methods there? Yeah, I mean, I am going to be going to Senegal in mm. September. Um, so... You know, I can only tell you right now from things that I've heard. I can't tell you right now from experience yet, but hopefully if you talk to me in October, I'll be able to tell you from experience. Um, I have not heard of a large-scale, like, watershed-wide 
water harvesting project, the same kind that I've seen in India, in Africa. That's not to say they're not there, and I know that there's a lot of people doing different work. I just haven't heard of like, oh, well, no, that's not true. The Chikukwa project in Zimbabwe. That is a large watershed scale revegetation water harvesting project. It's the same type of thing we're talking about in India where a village basically controls the land within a particular watershed. And I know that the Chikukwa project, um, uh, the Chimani Mani um, area in southern Zimbabwe, I know that they have had people from all over Africa come and do trainings there. It's a very well, there's a documentary about the, about the project. It's very well known. Um, now, the project that I'm going to see in Senegal is more of a, it's a tree planting project. Um, and... I would like to also visit, when I'm there, I'm trying to make this happen, a project by the World Food Program, which really is like large-scale water harvesting discs, like a little crescent, Mm -hmm. and then tree planting specifically, you know, it's the Great Green Wall of Africa to stop the encroachment of the Sahara South. Mm. So... I need to see for my own eyes uh, to really tell you, like, you know, what I think about all some of that work going on there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And how would it translate to the U.S., where it seems like we're a bit more law and government oriented around our watersheds? Like, does this kind of method somehow translate to how if we want to restore the watersheds in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, I think our problems are a lot of it's social problems. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we have the property ownership grid that is not corresponding to watersheds. So um, I don't know why governments have not tuned in to some of this stuff. In some, no, okay, there are some projects in the U.S., that are really successful. Um, there's a couple of videos that my friend just turned me on to uh, from this project in northeastern Nevada. That's actually, it's the BLM. They're not putting in water harvesting structures, but they are putting in cattle control structures. And just by keeping, by, by having a tighter rotation and fencing schedule on cattle on federal lands and then keeping them out of the riparian zone, they have induced the comeback of beavers. Mm. And the beavers have come back into these watersheds and completely transformed the hydrology of these basins. And also the cattle are being managed better on the slopes. So, I mean, that's definitely like an example. There's these, there's this incredible, I can't remember right now, um, very well-produced video about this project there. I think if you just like go on YouTube and do like a beaver watershed restoration nevada something you'll come up with it or i could if you have a show notes i could look it up um i don't know what our problem is (laughs) i think i heard of dixie river where they were doing the the fencing the cattle and then okay it started restoring maybe that's what it is maybe that's it yeah yeah so and and so the beavers can do some of the work these indian workers are doing kind of we could let them do yeah, they don't Building have beavers over there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I put out. Species, I yeah. put out this beaver video, and all these people in Australia were like, "Oh, you're from Australia? 
Yeah. We're like, <laughs> we don't have beavers, right? We don't, you know, like, so, you know, we're really lucky to have beavers. Right. In fact, you can go right out here in Corvallis. I could show you beaver dams that are like doing incredible work. You know, the beavers are, they're just busy. Yeah. They're very, they don't take weekends off, you know. <laughs> And you don't want to introduce them where they don't belong. Because I think in South Africa, America, somewhere, they tried to introduce you. Uh And then it kind of chewed the wrong tree. And then there was, I mean, of course, a lot of problems. So it has to be a native. It has to be a native to Uh that area. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, but our whole, the whole North American continent was full of beavers. So it's like... In Britain, too, yeah. Okay. Oh, there's beavers in Britain? I think in Europe. Yeah, parts of Europe, yeah. Oh, yeah, like the European beaver or something like that? Probably, yeah. I don't know the name, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, right? The beavers have built up a lot of our wetlands and water system, and which then leads to the whole vegetation growth. Right? Yeah. And again, beavers are working in the channel. They do a really great work in the channel. Um, but when we look at these projects, I'm talking about in India, especially Pani Foundation, they're doing a lot of work in the upper watershed. They're starting all the way at the top, the mm. plateaus. They're working down the slopes and then in the channels, in the foothills a lot of the work is like in the foothills too mm-hmm. like as you know the kind of where this the the slope kind of breaks a little bit and you get these kind of hilly terrain till you hit the the lowlands a lot of their continuous contour trenches you know they'll have like an entire these things are not widely spaced they'll literally like have looks like tree rings they're just building water harvesting structures over a whole wide area mm-hmm to basically have like zero runoff from monsoons and it's very effective and do they have flooding issues in india oh yeah for sure and does this help solve some of the flooding issues yeah absolutely i mean because you're just moderating the pulse of water through the watershed Mm -hmm. so you're collecting water you're just you're like evening out the flow so in a flood situation you fill up all your structures it soaks in you know it it adds it, it serves as like a a shock absorber mm. when you get this massive pulse of water. Yeah. So basically as we kind of have more extremes of drought and floods, like if we can restore the landscape, it will actually, uh, yeah, as you say, the dampen or, or shock absorb this. And so you create yeah. less extremes in the landscape and yeah. also perhaps it, it actually creates less extremes as research showing that creates less extremes in the weather too. Yeah. I remember I saw Jeff Lawton speak at the, uh, international permaculture conference in 2015 in london and that was that was kind of like when i got that terminology of like oh intact ecosystems spongy soil forests you know agricultural rich agricultural lands with lots of organic matter in the soil like these are these are shock absorbers of climatic effects of weather Mm -hmm. basically and when you denude the landscape, when you take away the trees, like you no longer have this biotic pump effect. You no longer have this relationship between the forested lands and the atmosphere. So once you don't have the trees and the ecosystem to, to buffer that shock, then when you get a cloud burst on a hillside, all that water just rushes off, mm. you know? So in, in a sense, I, I would like the... I think that might be a good terminology for governments to be like, oh, we need to create some shock absorbers in the system. Mm. I'm always looking for terminology. I'm like, what ter- what, how, can we, how can we like flip people's minds? How can we make this all make sense to people? Mm. Of course, it's not their minds that make the decision. They have to be passionate 
They have right. to have their emotionally involved. I think in shock it. absorber sounds good. Yeah. Or like kind of dampening extreme weather somehow. Yeah. And what do you think about the idea of how do we create more of a climate permaculture? Because there's a whole permaculture movement, there's a whole climate movement. But they have, you know, the overlap is, is kind of s- smaller right now. But our permaculture techniques and restoring the water and landscape is really affecting these extremes in floods and droughts and also fires as a result. Yeah. So like, is there a way to create a kind of climate permaculture meme field? I think one of the problems with the climate movement is because I, I'm, I follow a lot of climate people on Twitter and stuff that, you know, cause I'm really interested in like Antarctic sea, sea ice extent and, how hot the water is around Florida right now and record ocean temperatures and all this stuff. Like I follow this stuff pretty closely, but everything is very, it's very fear-based, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't, there's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, by any means, right? But it's all like, don't you see? We got to wake up until it's all, until, you know, like we got to wake up before it all goes down look what's happening like it's very like you don't have anything to do with that it's like throw yourself in front of the machine you know slow down the machine or something like that. it's just like it's just not it's so not actionable for the regular person and so people tune it out mm. and like like i said i just i just interviewed Sadhguru, um you know the founder of the isha foundation he's like a worldwide mystic he's got I don't know, hundreds of millions of followers around the world. And um, he was basically like, only emotional connection moves people to do something. There's there's only, there's a very narrow slice of people in the world that are motivated by fear of climate catastrophe. It's like if you draw like the Venn diagram of like, this, how big is the circle of the people that are motivated by climate catastrophe? You know, it's not a big circle to overlap with other circles. How many people, uh, permaculture, say, are like motivated by creativity and growing and like watching and experiencing the expansion of life? Like most people that I know, they're in permaculture. Like they're in permaculture because they like watching things grow. Mm. they like watching life increase right so i think that people in the permaculture typically have a more i would say are more emotionally nurtured by their permaculture work than i would say people in the climate movement might tend to be less emotionally nurtured by that work because it's so it's so overwhelming right and you're like trying to get big governments to cut down co2 emissions and that's like you know you're yelling into the to a gale kind of thing so i would like to see people that are triggered by the climate movement to become like creators you know creators of life Mm. i mean i think that's and and you know i think that's where the emotional connection comes in like to care like how do you because people in climate movement it's like how do you get people to care you don't get people to care 
by telling them how terrible everything is. Mm. You know, how do you connect with them? Because that's what will move people to action. I don't know the answer. I'm I'm trying to create media right now that like also has art. You know, that touches mm. something more than is that it's not just informational. Right. That there's like it's beautiful. It's a story. There's art. It's interesting. Mm. It's scientific. It's it's emotional. It's factual. You know, it's hopeful. It's realistic. I mean, that's just like what I'm going for. I don't know. I'm I'm being a little bit successful with it, but in the scheme of things, you know, we need a million people doing what I'm doing to, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, where do you move the needle? I'm not sure. Well, I think you you're know. moving the needle. <laughs> I would, you know, if I move the needle a tiny bit, mm -hmm. that would be, what, what else could I ask for? Yeah. 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 I think the climate movement needs a bit more solutions. And I think things you can do in your watershed, like, because you actually need every group doing things in their watershed. Yeah. And so they can, so some of the climate movement can be, oriented to the solutions and maybe because the permaculture crowd attracts a certain more you know people interested in working the soil and plants crowd but i think there's a, a different crowd that could be attracted to permaculture through the climate movement realizing hey these are the ways to dampen the extremes of weather um and this is stuff you can do in your watershed in your local area yeah. and i don't want to disempower people from the political work that needs to be done right you know um because if everybody just goes and starts gardening and we don't we just like let the polluters off the hook right. i don't know i mean yeah it's, it's a both end you need yeah both. yeah it's a both end but like i think that the burnout potential when you're just fighting when you're fighting fossil fuel emissions it's like fighting a massive eight million ton dragon fossil fuel emissions it's like you know you're not going to get like a lot of wins in there mm. you know there's going to be there's a lot of losses in there but like but when you're like reforesting a watershed you're like wow like you can really see your wins so you know i, I guess i guess maybe people that are on the burnout level of fighting fighting could really find nourishment in also growing basically i mean maybe it's just a balance that people need to find in order to fuel you know the work that is not necessarily emotionally nurturing right cool i think that's a good place to end <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for for sharing this you're welcome it's a pleasure i love talking about this stuff cool <laughs>